0: Let's pray. Well, Father God, we come before you reminded of the sufficiency of your word, reminded that your word is breathed out by you and is sufficient for all things. And Father, I do pray that as we approach this text this morning, uh, once again, Lord, there are some heavy things for us to consider. Lord, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would open our eyes to see the hope that is available in Christ, and Lord, most importantly, that you would be glorified. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, a weak vessel, knowing that your power is made perfect in weakness, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, we are in our second week of a four-part series looking at uh, the Old Testament minor prophet of Malachi. Minor, not because his message is lesser in any way, but simply because it is shorter. There's only fifty-five verses. And as we saw last week, despite there only being 55 verses in this whole book, despite us only looking at some of those verses last week, there is much for us to take away from this prophet, from what he is calling the priest to. uh, And as we'll see today, what he is calling the nation of Judah to as well. Now, remember, this book was written in a post exilic period after Israel had returned from captivity. Now, while most prophets uh, would write in a time of political upheaval and change, Malachi wrote this message in a relatively peaceful, uneventful time. It, it was essentially a waiting period. Nothing seemed to be happening. The temple had been rebuilt, but God's presence hadn't seemed to have returned. We see that sacrifices were being performed, but as we saw last week, the way that they were being performed was corruptible. And was ultimately dishonoring to the Lord. This letter starts off with God reminding the people of how he has loved them. Pointing to his faithfulness and how he had chosen these people. He then goes to highlight the ways that they have failed to do what God had called them to do. And in a way that God had called them to do it. Throughout chapter 1, we saw this this backward and forwards where God holds out a charge against the people. And then rather than repenting, we see them just making excuses, giving objections. God charged them with profaning the table of the Lord. Our passage finished off last week with verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It was another warning. A warning from the Lord that the one who cheats the Lord will face the consequences. As we look at this text this morning, the the section that was just read for us by Jasmine, we are picking up some ways in where we left off. Once again, this passage carries with it a very heavy weight. After all, we're seeing a rebuke. This is a confronting of sin. It's a confronting of sin for the original hearers and for us. But as we see... This passage will also point us to an incredible hope, a hope that God himself has provided. So as we consider chapter 2 of Malachi, verses 1 to 16, we're going to be looking at two points that will serve as our outline this morning. Two points. Point number one, the Lord's rebuke in verses 1 to 9. And port, uh, point number two, a corrupt nation in verses 10 to 16. The Lord's rebuke and a corrupt nation. Let's look at this first point the Lord's rebuke. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. This opening line reminds us that the priests are the ones that God is addressing at this moment. Everything that God has said up to this point has been directed towards them, and the rebuke that is about to come is no different. It's once again directed towards the priests. O priests, this command is for you. There is no doubt who this is for. And Considering what we looked at last week in chapter 1, this, this carries with it quite a foreboding tone. I mean, it's almost the, the same tone that you hear in those pre-exilic warnings that we hear from Hosea chapter 5, one. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. Or Amos three one. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You read these words, and you can hear that warning coming through. And in considering the, the, the consequences that the people faced, what we see in our text can't be positive for the priests, should they remain on their chosen course of action. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Now it's interesting to note that even up to this point of where we're at, there, there, there almost seems to be this chance of forgiveness. There seems to be an opportunity for the priests to turn from their ways. If you will not listen, which means right now, th- there's still a chance. There's still a chance for them to listen. If you will not take too heart to give honor to my name, which means there is still a chance to take to heart, to to give honor to the Lord's name. I mean, just think about that. Think about the charges that God has laid out against the priests. Think about what he's accusing them of last week. Remember who is speaking. This This is the Lord. This is the one who is making this statement. The Lord of hosts who is speaking. With the way the priests have profaned his name. He would be well within his right as the sovereign God, the creator and ruler of everything, to just simply wipe them out. But, as we saw last week in verse 1, I have loved you, says the Lord. And that wasn't a once-off love. No, it's I have loved you, and I still do. We are seeing that here in <laughs> He he is being so patient towards those who are defiling his name. Friends, as we sit here this morning, what areas in your life is God showing patience towards you? Areas where you maybe have profaned his name, publicly or privately. Privately. What did this past week look like for you? What sins characterized you? Pornography? Anger? Bitterness? Getting drunk? Cheating your work out of money? Lying? Are there sins that you are unwilling to repent of? Or are you constantly just trying to justify your actions? If there's something that you need to confess, if there's something that you need to repent of, Don't wait. Do that today. Do that now. Come and chat to one of the elders. Come and chat to a community group leader. Any of the people that you saw up here this morning. Chat to the person who you came with today. But confess, do not let the sun go down on your sin. Hear these words this morning. This command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor my name, then I will send the curse upon you. God is gracious. He is merciful. Not treating us as our sins deserve, but as this passage reminds us, there will be consequences. There were consequences for Judah and Israel. There are consequences for the priests who do not listen. And friends, there will be consequences for you if you fail to To heed these warnings. The warning here is very real. If you do not listen. If you do not take it to heart. Give honor to my name. Says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed I have already cursed them. But while the warning is held out to their priests. We see that their actions have already had consequences. And that is a heavy reminder for us. That while God holds out His grace, he, he holds out this forgiveness, we cannot fool ourselves and think that our sin does not carry with it any kind of consequence. Those sins that are both public and those sins that are private. Public sins can, can cost us our, our job. They can cost us a friendship. It can cost us a marriage. But privately as well. They have bearing on our relationship with the Lord. I mean, our sin hinders our relationship with Him. It hinders our prayers. While nothing can separate those from the Lord, those that are truly saved, it shapes the way that we view God. And as we saw last week, it dishonors the name of the Lord, profanes it. Verse 2 warns the priests that there are already consequences. I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. I mean, the, indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it heart. I mean, this is a shocking thought thought. The curse is falling, right? This curse is gonna fall on those who are meant to be a blessing to the people. Remember, these are the priests, the ones who were charged with guarding the tabernacle performing sacrifices on Israel's behalf, leading the nation in holiness. They were to be the teaching authority to the nation. They were to be an example. They were to be the ones to bless the people. Malachi expands this curse in verse 3 to show what this curse will involve. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. There's two words here that are important for us to note. The first word is that word rebuke. And this is a very strong word. This is not just a simple, now don't do it again. It's more than just a simple criticism. I mean, think about it. When God rebukes something, he stops it. Think about when Christ rebukes the wind and the sea in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26. It stopped. It ceased. The second thing for us to take note of here is this word offspring. This, the, the Hebrew word there can be translated into seed or, or, or to sow one seed. The use of this word suggests the, the descendants of the priests, that both them and the subsequent generations will be punished. But the point that is being made here is not that God will rebuke and annihilate their offspring. That somehow their offspring will cease to exist. But rather the function, the role of the priest's offspring will cease to continue. And can you imagine what a shock that must be to hear? I mean, the role of the priest was something that was so integral to the the fabric of the nation of Israel. God had established himself as their God. He had chosen them to be his people. The role of the priest had been established from their time in the wilderness. I mean, from the role of when the, when the priesthood was established by God to the time of Malachi. I and mean, we're talking like more than a thousand years. And now because of their sin, because of the way uh, that they had been dishonoring the name of the Lord, it was so serious. God was taking this so seriously that this, one of the central themes of the Jewish life was going to cease to exist. But it seems to get worse. Verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And the offal offal from the animals was to be removed, taken away out of the sanctuary. We get these instructions in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, With its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. And not only is this devastating news that this is coming to an end, but as we think about this picture that's being painted for us here, I mean, it's literally meant to make us stop. And respond in the only way that we could as we think about this image of dung being wiped on faces. It's it's disgusting. It's revolting. And that's exactly the picture that is being painted of their offerings to the Lord. They are so disgusting. They are so revolting. Just as the entrails and dung from the offering should be removed and burned, so should you who have done this wicked thing. Your sacrifices have absolutely no value. And these sacrifices, along with you, there's only one place that they belong. The spreading, this idea of spreading of of dung on their faces, is really a a visible picture of making visible the the shame of what they have actually done. Things just seem to go from bad to worse. Charged with dishonoring the Lord's name, rebuked. The priesthood seemingly coming to an end. Their sin and shame put on display for all to see. The outcome looks desperately, desperately bleak. Let me get to verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. As we consider this this verse, verse 4, Most agree that this command, that my covenant with Levi may stand, was meant to lead to repentance. With the possibility of this covenant being sustained or or continued. And then the section finishes off with this contrast between the priest's responses and what the responsibility and the actions of the Levitical priests were meant to be. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, and as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Verses 5, 6, and 7 really highlight what the, these priests' roles were meant to be, what the purpose of their interaction with the Lord was, and how they were to conduct themselves. I mean, as you hear that and you contrast what we've just seen last week and this week, you see this disparity. And in verse 8, highlights how they failed to do this. I mean, their actions are hardly of those that have stood in awe of the Lord's name. True instruction seems to have disappeared through their actions, and the responses to their charges uh, just seem to to, to lessen and lighten what the Lord is actually brought against them. They have turned aside from the way, where the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should instruction uh, seek instruction from his mouth. These priests have caused many to stumble. This covenant was one of life and peace, a covenant of reverent fear, honoring the Lord. But they have corrupted the covenant. Therefore, because of their actions, the consequences of this, verse 9, So I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. God has exposed this corruption of the priests. And this has been made clear to all the people. These priests are seen as despised uh, or to be treated as worthless because of their actions. Which is exactly how they have treated the name of the Lord. These men were now humiliated. The people saw their actions for what they were, empty and to be despised. I mean, these priests were far more concerned with gaining favor with men than seeking to honor and walk with God. I mean, as we, we, we consider these words, and we consider the weight of what's being held out here, this is really something that those who, who seek to lead God's church should, should take seriously. This is not something that we should just skim over. We know that those who are called to lead, to shepherd the church, should know the weight of responsibility that comes with that. As those who are called to to shepherd this church, for myself and the other pastors here at Redeemer, we know first and foremost our responsibility is to honor God in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. Even if that may mean not being the most popular or being the most agreed upon decision. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not a a license for elders and, and pastors to do whatever they want, say whatever they want, behave however they want. All we do has got to be in light of what the scriptures teach us, what God's word calls us to. But it does mean that we need to check our own hearts, we need to check our own motives. Are we truly seeking to honor God in this? Or are we more concerned or are we more worried about what people will think and say? But while the section is directed toward the priests, this has much to say all of us as believers sitting here this morning. There is much for us to take away from this section. It should cause us to stop and think about our own actions. How have we lived? Do we live to honor God? Or do we live to gain favor from man? What of your words? What have your actions communicated to those you've engaged with this week? That you're seeking to honor God? Or that you're more concerned with their opinions? Well, this is a heavy thing for us to consider, the reality is that while we may try and hide and think that our sin has no bearing on others, while we may try to justify that Really, it's, it's isolated and no one else will ever be affected by it. The reality is that it is never just you that sin affects. And there is an aftermath. And that's very much what we will see in our next point, a corrupt nation. Our text transitions to a new audience seemingly uh, albeit maybe it's a more of an expanded audience where before the charge was against these priests specifically the charge or the accusations now seem to be directed toward the nation of Judah. as we consider this this point of a corrupt nation we're going to be looking at two charges or, or accusations that are brought against the people essentially two subpoints within this main point. the first charge, is their faithlessness towards each other. And for men, marrying women who were devoted to false gods, while the second charge deals with their faithlessness of the men and the divorcing of their wives. Let's look at that first charge, verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of, of our fathers, and the first part of this verse is is somewhat rhetorical. However, it's not referring to uh, the creation of all mankind. Uh, well, yes, God is the, the the true creator, the one true creator, and He has created everything and everyone. Rather, the context here is pointing to the Jewish nation. Commentator Joyce Baldwin says this in light of this passage. He says. Here is scriptural precedent for Abraham, your father. And I was referring to Isaiah 51.2. An interpretation that is favored by Jerome and Calvin. And Malachi makes frequent mention of Jacob, from whom the twelve tribes descended. There can be little doubt, but that Malachi intended we, uh, we to mean fellow Jews. So even if he had in mind God as the one father, he's not thinking in terms of the universal brotherhood of man. His concern was rather for evidence of brotherly loyalty within the nation of Israel. Has not one God created us? These twin ideas of fatherhood and creation are found in Deuteronomy and Isaiah. But always with Israel in mind. Because the nation was meant to reflect the character of the father who had taught it to walk in his way. So then if they are one nation, if they have one father, verse 10, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Other translations use the phrase being unfaithful to one another or dealing treacherously against each other. The question already assumes that this is, this is already happening. That they, this is something that they are already guilty of. This idea of being faithless or, or, or being uh, unfaithful or treacherous is used in multiple areas in the corporate life of this nation. From marriage to, to business to general social affairs. One commentator even notes that it includes the violation of the covenantal requirements, ordinances, commandments, ritual laws, and so on. Really, it seems that there, there wasn't an area, a single area, where people weren't being unfaithful. Friends, I hope you, you're beginning to see and feel the weight of what's going on here. The ones that they were meant to be most committed to, including spouses, as we will see in a moment. Their very own people and God were the ones that they were ultimately being faithless towards. We should stop and ask, how do we treat our fellow Christians, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you take advantage of them? Do you manipulate them to do something for you? Do you have a reputation amongst your fellow church members as someone who is untrustworthy or or, or double-tongued? Or have you taken advantage or or been unfaithful towards your fellow church member in other ways? We need to ask ourselves some serious questions. This is one of the reasons why we have a church covenant. It outlines how we as fellow Christians committed to this local body, that is Redeemer Church of Dubai, will seek to live out our lives by God's grace with one another while we are here in the city at this church. The first few points of our covenant say, Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now, in dependence upon His Spirit, resolve to live by faith and so establish this covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other. Forgiving, encouraging and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing each other when necessary. There is grace, there is patience, there is love, there is mercy in this context. It's not what we're seeing with these people. And Paul highlights this in his letter to the Galatians. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This isn't saying that you're only kind to your fellow Christians, and then you're rude and obnoxious to everybody else who crosses your path. But you should be especially ready to do good. You should be especially ready to love, to be kind, to be gracious, to be quick to forgive, to be quick to be patient to fellow Christians, especially those who you are covenanted with as a church member, be it here at Redeemer or if you're visiting your church back home. The people were failing in this. They were being wicked towards one another. But it's sadly, it wasn't just their interactions with, with fellow Jews that were the problem. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Having presented this question to the people uh, about their behavior in verse 10, the speaker here provides a uh, um, a response that highlights and affirms the people's behavior they have been faithless it's it's an abomination and obscenity has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem you hear these you hear these words right and you begin to think imagine something that is so vile so heinous i mean whatever being described here must be so wicked so evil for judah has profaned the sanctuary of the lord which he loves how have they done this? And this is similar language to what we saw earlier when the charge was being laid against the priests. We know that they were offering polluted sacrifices. I mean, their actions in how they were going about things was despicable. Surely what the people have done must be similar, if not worse. They must have done something absolutely terrible to warrant this kind of language. What have they done? What, what could possibly be so terrible? For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. You know, in this day and age, it can be easy for for people to read something like this and, and to think of, well, is that it? What's wrong with that? you hear the words married? You hear foreign daughter. You maybe think Boaz married Ruth, right? She was a foreign daughter, a Moabite woman. But the punishment here doesn't seem to fit the crime. But before we, we jump to the wrong conclusion, we need to understand what's going on here. You see, God's people have always meant to be distinct from those that are around them. Even when we think to the dietary restrictions and the intricate sacrificial system, it was to show that God's people were nothing like the people around them. Not only were they to be distinct in how they lived, in what they ate, and how they offered their sacrifices... They were to refrain from marrying those from foreign nations. As God knew that by doing so, they would be pulled. They would end up following the false gods of those nations. The people of God were meant to be holy and distinct. But instead, they had profaned the sanctuary of the Lord by indulging in this idolatrous worship, pursuing false gods, marrying daughters of these false gods, worshiping and uh, pursuing manufactured gods and then seemingly having done that, coming and approaching the presence of the Lord. As we consider what is happening to this nation, everything just just seems to be falling apart. That's not how it's supposed to be. We can't help but think to to what we looked at last week, the charge against their priests. I mean, what? while there is, there is no excuse for what this nation is getting up to, there is no excuse for their sin, and, and everyone is accountable for the sins that they commit, you almost can't help but feel like, well, if the priests had been fulfilling their responsibilities, doing what the Lord had called them to do, would that have actually taken place? I mean, it should definitely cause us to stop and think and, and ask the question, Do my actions, do my words, do the way that I I live out my life, do the way that I live out my faith, does it honor God? Or is it causing others to sin? Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Malachi's words here are straight to the point. Any man who has done this thing, profaned the land of the Lord by pursuing foreign gods, there are consequences, so much so that their very heritage would be cut off. One scholar says the idolatry left would be left with, with no one belonging to, his, to him in his old age. would so obviously not be blessed that other people would be discouraged from following his example and no children of his would survive. To perpetuate his sin. The consequences of these actions are not isolated, are not small, but they are far-reaching. And having laid this, this first charge against the people, Malachi then lays a second charge against them. Look at verse 13. And this is the, the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You know, we, considering everything that we've looked at so far, everything we've looked at this morning, we, we get to this passage. And it may seem straightforward as to, to what's going on. There is this, this seeming remorse of the people. The worst of the, word, the, the the word the use of the word here tears denotes this this figurative picture you know they're weeping they're wailing but sadly it's not because they've wronged the Lord it's because their sacrifices are no longer accepted by God he no longer regards their offering the favor that the people were to have from the Lord no longer seems to be there you think by now that they would have realized and woken up to their wicked ways, that they would be quick to be on their knees in repentance, seeking forgiveness from the Lord, going to their brothers and sisters who they've wronged, going to their wives that they've left, and being restored. Instead, what do we see? But you say, verse 14, why does he not? Why does he not accept our sacrifices? We see another objection. Hey, God, this isn't fair. Why isn't God accepting our offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The charge against these men is that they've broken the marriage covenant. This covenant that the Lord bore witness to, the way He does every marriage. They have committed adultery, breaking the covenant that they have made. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was that one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in Spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of the youth. This oneness language echoes God's words in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As we we see this this mention of godly offspring, we must remember that in the Old Testament, the blessings often for the nation came through the continuation of the family line. The blessings were. Of offspring, remember God's covenant promised to Abraham. But this this covenant has been broken. And we get to verse sixteen, it continues as a warning. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirits, and do not be faithless. The name that Malachi uses here, the the God of Israel, is the only time that he uses this term and is meant to remind the people, right? It's meant to remind them of their relationship with God and how this subject concerns the future of the chosen race, of this chosen race, as they understood it. And when it comes to divorce, something that, that God hates, it's like covering your garments in violence, Obviously, here speaking figuratively, but it's to highlight the injustice. He means like when someone has been attacked or, or someone has been murdered, beaten, bloodied, the blood of the victim is, is there for everyone to see. There is a mark for, for all to see. Poincare's divorce leaves its mark for all to see. God takes marriage very seriously. It is a gift from Him. It is good. God gave Adam and Eve to one another in the garden. We we're reminded of the words uh, <clears throat> that marriage was given by God uh, before sin even came into the world. We saw it in chapter 2. Sin only came in chapter 3. But sadly, in many marriages, we see the effects of sin. So we have this, this beautiful union that God has created, that God has established. And we see the effects of sin, which is why there is divorce. When Jesus is having the discussion on the matter of divorce with the Pharisees, he says, Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Now, friends, these, these can be very difficult words to hear. If you're sitting here this morning and you've gone through a divorce, please know that you're welcome here. We are so thankful that you are here with us today. We're not trying to point a finger and saying that you're in sin, although perhaps you might be. And there may be something that you ultimately need to repent of. If that is where you find yourself, come and talk to anyone who you've seen up here today. We would love to think through this with you, would love to pray with you, remind you of the incredible hope and forgiveness and redemption that there is in Christ. I also want to say, if you find yourself in a marriage where there is abuse or where adultery has been committed, I would urge you as well to come and talk to us, especially if there is abuse. If yours or a child's safety is at stake, let someone know who can help. But maybe you just find yourself in a difficult marriage. You're in a very difficult season. Maybe you're sitting here and think that your marriage is done. The the love, the joy, the the passion that once seemed to be so evident has just dissipated over the years. Again, if that is you, I would encourage you, come and talk to us. We have seen that God takes marriage very seriously and hates marriage. Divorce. We live in a day and age where marriage is viewed so lightly. Where if things aren't working out the way you planned or expected, you move on. Like changing jobs or, or getting a new car. But that's not what God calls us to. And while things may be difficult, friends, far too many are, are too quick to jump on the divorce chain, as it were. And that is sinful. And I would caution you to consider what the prophet has been warning the people of here. In our text this morning, as we close, I wonder if you notice that there seems to be a lot of things that have been broken here. We've seen the breaking of the Levitical covenant by the priests, the breaking of the covenant that the people had with God, breaking of the marriage covenant. And there seems to be nothing that the people could or would do to restore what was being broken. And yet, as we look at verse 16, we should be reminded of the one who did not divorce his bride. Who didn't abandon her. Instead, he laid down his life for his bride. As we think of this text, we should think of the one who not only kept the covenant with God perfectly, but now in him there is a new covenant. A new and everlasting covenant. Covenant provided by God that he established through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Friends, we should walk away from here this morning recognizing our sinfulness. Of how we have fallen short of God's standard. Confessing the ways that we have sinned. And yet, we should walk away with incredible hope. Knowing that through Christ, there is a covenant that cannot be. Be broken for all who turn and put their faith and trust in him alone. For all who turn and trust in this bridegroom. Who through his shed blood cleansed his bride. And will one day present her to the father spotless. Without blemish. Friends walk away from here today. Looking to Christ. Clinging to him. And trusting Him. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider the words of Malachi, Father, I do pray that we would appropriately respond. That, Lord, we would feel the weight of what is being held out here, that we would feel the weight of our sin. Of what it does, of how it affects not only our relationship with you, but how it affects the relationship with those around us. And Lord, that we would repent. That we would seek forgiveness. That we would seek to have relationships restored where they have been broken. And ultimately, Lord, that we would look to Christ, through whom we have an incredible hope through whom we have an everlasting covenant. And Father, we pray that you would work in us and through us for the glory of your name alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.